Hi and welcome to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life. I'm Ren Lev. It's early 2004, and one of the two or three greatest cyber criminals to ever walk the planet, Albert Gonzalez, is on the payroll of the United States Secret Service. And not just working for them, thriving with them. For months, sometimes all day and night, he works alongside bona fide agents out of a satellite office in an army repair garage in Jersey City. And those agents actually like him. One prosecutor later told the New York Times, quote, It was kind of a bonding experience. He and the agents developed over time a very close bond. They worked well together, end quote. They even gave him a nickname, Soup, a play of his online persona, Soup Nazi. And Albert is teaching them all kinds of new things. It's like when he was 14 and the FBI visited to figure out how a kid who'd only just reached puberty managed to hack into NASA. Remember what happened? An agent took Albert into a room, they sat there for an entire afternoon, and by the time they came out, it was the agent, not the child, who was left dizzy. This kid is amazing, Albert's lawyer recalled the man saying. He's running circles around me. Now, at 23, Albert is running circles around the Secret Service. The prosecutor recalled how, quote, spending this much time with an informant this deeply into a cybercrime conspiracy it was a totally new experience for all of us, end quote. By springtime, the service trusted Albert enough to make him the fulcrum for the biggest ever cyber operation. It's ironic, actually, that they were about to use one of history's greatest cyber criminals to attempt the most ambitious sting in the history of cybercrime to date. Albert is an administrator on the, on the Shadow Crusade, and he actually begins to climb even further within their ranks as he, at the same time that he's working with the Secret Service. That's Sherry Davidoff, CEO of LMB Security and author of the book Data Breaches. You might have assumed that once he went clean, Albert left the cyber underground for good. But the service had him do the exact opposite stay active, become more embedded in the community. It was all part of the plan. The other thing to understand about this time is that the dark web doesn't exist. And that means that as all these hackers are visiting Shadow Crew and buying and selling credit card numbers, this is all on the normal internet. The web domain for Shadow Crew is www.shadowcrew.com. As simple to type into your browser as google.com. That means all this cybercrime is hiding in plain sight. Shadow Crew users are in real need of more reliable ways to cover up what they're doing. One way you can hide yourself on the open web is via a virtual private network, or VPN. 
a VPN is basically a remote computer that functions as a proxy for all your data transfers. As an analogy, say I wanted to send a letter to Beno, our sound designer, to tell him I really love the music he adds to the episodes. But I don't want him to know that I wrote the letter, since he might ask for a raise. So I write, Dear Ben O, I really love your music, and I place the note in an envelope, but I don't send the letter to Ben O, I send it to Nate, our producer, instead. Nate then takes the letter, removes the original envelope that had my name and address on it, and replaces it with a new envelope with his name and address. He then sends it over to Ben Or, who gets the note. Wow, gee, thanks. And since the note came from Nate and not from me, he has no idea that I'm the true originator of the letter. <laughs> I'd recognize Rand's handwriting everywhere. He probably doesn't want me to ask for a raise. Such a cheapskate. Jeez. VPNs work in a similar fashion. You establish a secure encrypted connection to a remote server and tunnel all your browsing activity through that remote server so that your true identity is hidden. There are ways to supersede VPN connections to figure out who's behind certain internet activity, but it is difficult. So you can imagine how useful a VPN would be for members of Shadow Crew. The Secret Service knew it. So Albert says to everybody, hey, I've set up a VPN service. Soup Nazi starts promoting his own VPN. He first does this quietly behind the scenes and he gets the Shadow Crew leadership on board. And then after a few months, he starts offering it to the whole Shadow Crew community. Albert is a well-respected member of the community. He's got cred. Eventually, the whole Shadow Crew site was moved onto servers that the Secret Service could monitor. It's not like the members didn't realize the risk. There were certainly times that members said, hey, jokingly. Um, there, were, there were certainly times that members jokingly said things like, hey, if uh, the Secret Service had a back door, they could listen to everything we said. And Albert would just sort of laugh it off and reassure them. Except they're right. The Secret Service has a backdoor into Albert's VPN and is actually monitoring everything that they do. The U.S. government now has an unobstructed view into almost all the activity happening on the biggest cybercrime website in the world, right down to the most granular levels. The book Kingpin describes what they found. Quote, there were deals every day and every night with a weekly surge in trading Sunday evenings. The transactions ranged from petty to gargantuan. On May 19th, agents watched one user transfer 115,000 credit card numbers to another number. In July, another user moved counterfeit UK passport. In August, someone sold fake New York driver's license, an Empire Blue Cross health insurance card, and a City University of New York student ID card to a member in need of a full identification portfolio. End quote. It's like this, but a hundred times over. The agents record everything they can. 
After a few months, when they've gathered enough evidence, it's time for phase three. Albert is sent to the Secret Service HQ in Washington, D.C. Just before 9 p.m. Eastern Time, he gets on a keyboard. Albert calls a meeting online, and when he does that, people listen. He gets the shadow crew leaders and key members into a chat forum. Meanwhile, in 28 locations across eight U.S. states and six countries, law enforcement agents are quietly gathering around houses, weapons drawn. The investigators really need to link the person at the keyboard to the stuff that they're to their to their online persona. So it's important to catch them in the act, as it were. Albert keeps the shadow crew members talking until 9 p.m. strikes. Then, all at once, 28 front doors bust open. They put out an indictment with 62 counts and a public press release, and this is like the biggest cyber criminal bust in history. 19 individuals would end up being indicted. Many served years-long prison sentences. So this is not only a bust and something where the leaders and some buyers and sellers are going to be held accountable, it's also serving as a warning for others, which is very frightening to hackers and the cyber criminal underground. By October 27th, the homepage of shadowcrew.com looked a lot different than usual. In a move reminiscent of the Kibler elves, the Secret Service defaced the page, posting their logo at the top and a stock photo of a man behind bars. Then, in all caps, quote, contact your local United States Secret Service field office before we contact you. End quote. Fittingly, Shadow Crew's slogan, for those who wish to play in the shadows, was crossed out. There were no more shadows to play in. If you're a defender fighting to protect your organization from cyber attackers, you must be successful ending attacks every single time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. Our future-ready attack platform gives defenders the wisdom to uncover, understand, and piece together multiple threats. And the precision focus to end cyber attacks instantly. Cyber Reason. End cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. The bust, dubbed Operation Firewall, was a resounding success. The biggest in cyber history to that point. Albert Gonzalez transformed from most wanted to most lauded. But it didn't take long for his fellow comrades from Shadow Crew to realize that just one person inconspicuously avoided being arrested. Albert's co-workers at the Secret Service urged him to move back home to Miami for his own safety. He did, but continued to work as a paid informant in a series of new investigations. Again, he was outstanding. He was such a good Secret Service employee, in fact, that they had him do seminars and speak at government conferences. At one point, he met personally with the then-director of the Secret Service. Albert gave a presentation and got a shake the man's hand. 
It's a remarkable redemption story, you'd have to say. There was just one caveat. You see, Albert Gonzalez went from stealing millions of credit cards to quarterbacking the largest cybercrime bust in U.S. history. And then he went back. Even before he got to Miami, Albert was researching how to breach corporate networks. Why would he think to go back there? Albert was addicted to hacking. <laughs> I think it was a lifestyle for him at that point. And remember, all of his friends are doing it. It's, it's his community. In some sense, it's debatable whether Albert, quote-unquote, went back to hacking or simply never stopped. I'm not sure there was ever a clean break that Albert really stopped working with, quote, the dark side. I think that this was a continuous process for him. You need to try and get out of your own head and place yourself in his for a moment. Think back on everything you heard earlier in this story. What was Albert actually doing for the Secret Service? Was he helping bust Shadow Crew and other cybercrime operations? Yes. Was he performing the ultimate data breach by convincing the U.S. government to grant him access to their internal systems and communications in order to better understand their capabilities and weaknesses? Crazy as it sounds, that too. Exactly what his motivations were at any given point in time are to this day only known to him. Maybe there was a time when, as his Secret Service co-workers believed, he genuinely turned to the good side. Maybe he liked working with them, but never quite gave up the idea of going back. Or it's entirely possible, likely even, that Albert Gonzalez was a triple agent the entire time. Actually, not even triple. We're going to have to come up with a new term entirely. A triple agent is somebody pretending to be a double agent for one side, while actually acting as a double agent for the other side. Albert wasn't pretending, though. He was doing good work for the U.S. government, and enjoying it, while also infiltrating them and gathering information he could use later for malicious purposes. What do you call that? A quadruple agent? For now, let's just call it playing both sides. And he continued playing both sides even years after this point in the story. It's almost unbelievable. By the end of this episode, Albert will have pulled off one of the biggest data breaches of the decade while on government payroll. His best friend in the service, an agent named Michael, later reflected on how an actual government intelligence agency missed the signs. Quote, Looking back, we knew what he wanted us to know. He was leading a double life within a double life. End quote. Nobody felt quite so betrayed as Michael, who'd taken Albert under his wing like a brother. They worked side by side for years. Michael was the one who gave Albert his nickname, Soup. He watched over him, mentored him, 
When Albert moved to Miami, Michael was also transferred there. More than anything else, hearing how Michael tells it really drives home how Albert wasn't some devious criminal who they were utterly oblivious to. He was a genuinely beloved guy, which made his decisions all the more disappointing. Quote, I put a lot of time and effort into trying to keep him on the straight and narrow and show him what his worth could be outside of that world. Keep him part of the team. And he knows that. And he knew what good he could have done with his talent. We work with a million informants, but for me, it was really tough with him. End quote. Working at the service was the kind of insight and experience money couldn't buy. With all his experience, both with the cops and the robbers, you could make a good case that at this time, the mid-2000s, Albert Gonzalez was the single most powerful hacker on the planet. And now he was going to use his power against corporate networks. As Albert researched new ways of breaking into the most lucrative targets in the country, he decided to reconnect with some old buddies. One of those buddies was Christopher Scott, not exactly a mastermind of Albert's caliber. A journalist once described Christopher as, quote, a depressed, overweight geek, end quote. He'd met Albert over internet relay chat years back, and he made a decent hacker, But the most useful thing about him was probably who he happened to be good friends with. A handsome, skinny, 22 years old with short brown hair and glasses. Somebody we actually mentioned in our last episode. At the time, one of the most famous hackers in the world, far more so than Albert Gonzalez. While they're completely unlike in personality, One reserved and emotional, the other outgoing and charismatic, Jonathan James was in many ways like Albert's mirror image. He grew up an eight-minute drive from Albert in a pretty similar house, in a somewhat more affluent but largely similar neighborhood. His parents were pretty ordinary folks and religious, Jewish in this case. Also like Albert, Jonathan picked up computers at a young age. Really young, in fact. At only six years old, he began spending entire days on his father's PC. By middle school, he was good enough that he decided to switch its operating system from Windows to Linux to allow for finer control. Similar to Albert's parents, the Jameses had conflicting feelings about their son's behavior. On one hand, he was already as talented as professional computer experts by high school. But it was also clear that this wasn't a hobby. It was an obsession. Jonathan rarely had time for anything else, and he acted out at the slightest provocation. For example, at age 13, he ran away from home because his mother confiscated his computer. When he called to say that she needed to return it or he wouldn't come back, she had to have the police trace his location. In another instance, Mr. James went so far as to physically cut his son's connection to the Internet. In response, Jonathan rebraided the severed wire by hand. 
Though he may have only known Albert as Soup Nazi at the time, Jonathan James was also a member of Kibler Elves. And where Albert had hacked NASA with the group at age 14, Jonathan independently hacked NASA along with the U.S. Department of Defense at age 15. Jonathan and Albert had a ton in common up until a very crucial inflection point. Recall what happened to Albert after he hacked NASA. Not much. The FBI went to his school, then talked with him a while, then they went away and Albert quietly returned to hacking. After Jonathan hacked the US government, he made a severe error. He bragged about it to fellow hackers. According to the Miami New Times, that's what turned prosecutors against him. Aside from the sheer embarrassment he caused, the bragging earned him fame and prevented them from effectively using him to catch anyone else. And so, at age 16, Jonathan James became the first ever minor to be incarcerated for a cyber crime. Between 2000 and 2003, he spent half a year under house arrest, half a year in juvie, and the rest under probation. Then, when his sentence was through, he and his friend Chris Scott linked up with their old Kibler elf buddy, Albert. Albert, you'll recall, was researching corporate breaches. At the same time, Jonathan and Chris were starting to explore a novel way of breaching retail stores, a strategy called war driving. Let me try to visualize this for you. The three friends start wall driving along Route 1 in Miami. So you're sitting in a car in a parking lot, or maybe you're literally just walking around nearby, and you have a really good antenna with you so that you can pick up wireless networks maybe further than a normal person's computer. So they sold really nice antennas at the time, even at just Best Buy. Uh, But you could also build your own or get one that was specialty made. So you get this powerful antenna and you can use software like Kismet uh, that you run on your computer and get a listing of all the networks that are available and what kind of security is on them. Albert and his friends pull into the parking lots of major retailers one by one looking for easy marks. And some of them literally just have no password. That's it. You literally see them. You connect to them, they have no password, and from there you're on that company's network. In other cases, they're using a protocol called WEP. And WEP was supposed to be secure, but unfortunately by then it clearly wasn't. There were a lot of very well-known vulnerabilities um, in the WEP protocol and tools that hackers were using and penetration testers were using that could crack it and enable you to access those networks as well. We always hear about, you know, like the hacker in the coffee shop, but I never hear about war driving. Is it still a thing? If, if so, why don't, why don't I hear about it more often? And if not, why not? Yeah, so, I mean, you can still go war driving. Um, 
but it's not as effective as it was at the time. I mean, back then in 2005, 2006, word driving was like shooting fish in a barrel. So many different organizations had open wireless networks or insecure wireless networks, particularly retailers, because financial institutions were investing in security, but retailers, not as much. They were not regulated. There were no examiners coming in, checking on their security. Um, And at the same time, they had all this uh, very valuable payment card information on their network. So they were really a perfect target. It doesn't take Chris, John, and Albert very long to find some barrel fish worth shooting. So Christopher Scott and Jonathan James uh, find this weak wireless access point. They break into Office Max. They break into other retailers and they start stealing card numbers from those retailers. And they find that it's very lucrative. Chris and Jonathan are the coders. Albert is the money guy. Together, they hack Office Max, BJ's Wholesale, Sports Authority, DSW, Bars and Nobles, and more. Each time, it's the same. Breach a vulnerable access point, steal credentials, move laterally, access point-of-sale machines. Thousands of credit and debit cards flood in. Albert and his associates map the stolen data onto blanks, then quote-unquote runners cash them out at ATMs. It's all just too easy. Albert starts thinking bigger. Albert is always into the state of the art. He always likes to understand what's going on and uh, be on that cutting edge of his industry, which unfortunately for him is cybercrime. One day in July 2005, Chris Scott drives up to Marshall's clothing store. The Wi-Fi network looks ripe for the taking. As usual, he parks the car and quickly breaks into a vulnerable access point. He does it again at another nearby location. This time, the group tries something different. They don't just settle for two marshals. They decide instead to use the stores as entry points in a much larger scheme. Within a matter of weeks, Christopher and Jonathan map the Marshall's network, steal unprotected authentication data, and escalate to the headquarters of their parent organization, TJX Companies, a multi-billion dollar organization. In May of 2006, Albert's colleagues set up a VPN to TJX's network, which enabled them to more persistently steal card numbers. Now, Albert started getting frustrated because TJX was storing a huge amount of data. For whatever reason, if you had shopped at Marshalls or uh, TJ Maxx in the mid-2000s, TJ companies would just keep your card data in their system. A lot of it was for expired cars. So here he is putting a lot of work into stealing payment card numbers, and a lot of those card numbers are expired. So he says, I need fresh card numbers, and I have access to this network. So he turns to his friend, Stephen Watt. Stephen Watt, Albert's best friend and one of the most confounding people you'll ever come across. The first thing anybody notices about Stephen Watt is that he's taller than almost every NBA player, coming in at seven feet tall and more jacked than most NFL players. His face is chiseled. His forehead is more like an eighthead. He wears earrings, and his long, blonde ponytail falls well below his shoulders. 
In a DEF CON presentation you can find online, the MC aptly refers to him as Thor. But Chris Hemsworth would absolutely cower in fear if he had to face up against Stephen Watt. And if that weren't enough, the guy's a certifiable genius. After graduating high school at age 16 with a 4.37 GPA and graduating college at age 19, Stephen landed a job at Morgan Stanley, 20 years old, on Wall Street. He was earning $130,000 a year when his best friend, Albert, came calling, asking for the kind of program that could get him fresh card numbers. In later court hearings, Stephen claimed to not have known what his code was being used for. He told Wired magazine, quote, I assumed it would have something to do with web traffic or instant messaging conversations or logins of some other protocol not related to the credit card information. End quote. Later court documents would refute that claim. So he reportedly didn't know exactly what Albert was up to, but when Albert asked him for a little program that could sniff card numbers off the network, Stephen Watt was all too happy to oblige. This quote-unquote sniffer that Albert wanted from Stephen was in essence the difference between a data breach and a data waterfall. Albert already had access to millions of cards, but he wanted fresh ones. A packet sniffer software could be installed on TJX's point-of-sale networks to scrap credit cards in real time while they were being swiped. For Stephen Watt, the genius Wall Street bodybuilder, that kind of thing was a breeze. He did it free of charge. So he spent about 10 hours creating this, this little script called Blah Blah, and he emailed it to Albert. Blah Blah named after how little effort it took its creator, could pull card data from point-of-service machines. Once it reached a certain threshold, a program grouped all the numbers together, encrypted and compressed the package, then forwarded straight to Albert's computer, automatically. Albert then installed that on TJX's network and used that to steal millions and millions of card numbers fresh off the network as they were being processed. Estimates vary. According to the New York Times, he managed to steal 40 million credit cards. According to Wired Magazine, over 100 million. The problem here is that there's no reliable way to count. There were way too many to keep track of. And does it even matter? Even 10 million is difficult to picture. 100 million? Almost impossible to fathom. Perhaps it would be more helpful to think about it like this. Albert Gonzalez had stolen credit cards from somewhere between 20 to 50% of the entire American adult population, while he was only 25 years old, and still on the payroll of the United States Secret Service. It's probably stating the obvious at this point, but let's just say it's about to go down in the next episode of Malicious Life. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Following part one of the Albert Gonzalez series, we asked you over on Twitter the following question. 
Albert Gonzalez was arrested for the first time at age 14. Do you think it's possible to help teens that get caught up in cybercrime and stop them from eventually ruining their lives? 338 votes later, the poll's results were very decisive. 92% of you think that, yes, it is possible to help teens that get caught up in cybercrime. A few listeners even gave their own personal stories as examples. Joe Torres from Georgia wrote, quote, I had to explain a few computer-related incident things on my security forms when I was joining the military. My dad, a policeman, convinced me that computers were a fad and they would go away, but the world would always need cops. I became a cop for 10 years before getting back into IT. I was way out of the black hat mindset by then. End quote. At Qubit Bandit wrote, quote, Definitely. I started out as a cyber criminal, was arrested multiple times, and these days I'm working in the industry and doing lots of ethical freelance work. I can think of both pros and cons regarding being a criminal in the past. It's benefited me in some weird ways. End quote. One of the most interesting comments was from Tommy DeVos, who wrote, quote, I was arrested multiple times as a kid and young adult for being a black hat. Spent five years in U.S. federal prison as a result. I'm now a security engineer and one of the highest paid bug bounty hunters in the world. End quote. I told Tommy I'd love to hear his story, and he asked me to Google Million Dollar Hacker. So I did, and it got me to a Bloomberg piece about Tommy. It turns out Tommy wasn't kidding. He is one of the highest paid bug bounty hunters in the world. And that after Five years in jail? Respect. Amazing. A lot of people wrote about the need to mentor young and bright teenagers and help them put their skills to good use. Neurosplit wrote, for example, quote, We've all done stupid things when we were younger. Mentoring them off of the cybercrime path and offering them an opportunity is worth it. End quote. And at Ethical Caps added, quote, Yes, definitely, it's possible. We all know, as a teenager, a child can be molded into any direction. So it also depends on us, as adult hackers, who are hacking for good, to guide them in the best way possible and make them understand the difference between ethical and non-ethical stuff. End quote. Cass van Kooten from Utrecht in the Netherlands gave a fantastic example of how such mentoring can be done. He shared the link to a story about a Dutch cybercrime prevention program called Hack underscore Right, apparently still in its initial pilot stage, that takes young people who were arrested for cyber-related offenses and helps them get on the right track. Personally, I must say that I'm a little less optimistic as most of our listeners seem to be. I have no doubt that we should do all we can to help teenagers in risk, but I also think that some people are born with personality traits that pull them into these kinds of bad situations. As listener at Sixes Designs wrote, quote, Although I think they can be taught early on cybercrime is unethical, the temptation will always be there. Even now I feel the temptation many decades later. I know it's wrong, 
but it's like dropping catnip in front of a cat and saying no, end quote. But ultimately, I agree with what Certified Handholder 7 wrote, quote, to say no would imply that people are redeemable once a mistake is made, end quote. And I do think that people can change. It might take a long time, but we all change eventually. Thanks to all the many listeners who took the time to comment on the poll. I'm sorry I couldn't quote all of your tweets here. There were just too many. Also, thanks to Mick Halpin from Ireland, Jason Dance from New York, and Lane Smith from Massachusetts for reaching out to me on LinkedIn to say how much they enjoy the show and suggest topics for future episodes. You're awesome, guys. Thank you very, very much. As always... Our website is malicious.life, where you can find all of our past episodes and full transcripts. And you can find us on Twitter at at maliciouslife or at ranlevi, R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Nate Nelson is our senior producer. Benora Bari is our sound designer. Are you looking for someone to produce your podcast for you? Well, we love technology and we love podcasts. Talk to me. Ran at ranlevy.com. Thanks to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye bye. Oh my God. CK Music. 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 Music.